Please go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16 this morning. That's on page 958 of the ESV Pew Bibles, if you're using one out of the front pew there. Otherwise, just 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 16, so we'll take about half the chapter this morning. As we continue our series, A Roadmap for Raw Christians, the Believers in Corinth, Paul is attempting to move them from brand new belief to mature believers and and leaders in Christ's church. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer together. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, we ask for the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. We acknowledge that we depend upon you for light and understanding. Help us to understand the meaning of this passage, what Paul originally meant when he wrote to the believers in Corinth, and also, Father, how to apply this passage today faithfully so we can continue to to walk before you in truth and in light. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Everyone has their, their favorite part of a wedding, the, the part that they look forward to the most. For some people, it's when the bride walks down the aisle. It's when the music swells and everyone stands up and, and, and turns around and, and watches the bride being ushered down by her father. For some people, that's their favorite part. For other people, it's the decorations. They, they, they like to watch how a, a church or a venue is transformed through flowers and, and elegant yet tasteful decorations and, and often quite expensive. Uh, oftentimes there are structures that are erected and, and fabrics that are woven around and some people just like to see the decorations. For still others, it's the music. Maybe it's a, a soloist that sings a song that has special meaning and that it, it, it elicits an emotional response and it just pulls them in and that's, that's their favorite part. And still others appreciate it and look forward to the moment when the bride and groom turn to each other and they look into each other's eyes and they say their vows. But that's, that's their favorite part. One man in particular, uh, I remember talking to him, he said, my favorite part is when it's over and then I can go home. And I thought, here is an honest man. I have had the privilege of performing many weddings and I too have a favorite part. It's the pronouncement. It's the pronouncement. <clears throat> this is the, the liturgy that I've used, I believe, at almost every, if not every, wedding I've performed. And it goes like this. For as much as you have covenanted together according to God's holy ordinance of marriage, and have confirmed the same by making solemn vows before God and these witnesses, and by joining hands and exchanging rings, I pronounce you husband and wife, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What therefore God has joined together... Let not man separate. If those words sound familiar, then you've probably attended a wedding that I've officiated at because I've said those every single time. My favorite part is the pronouncement, and in particular, it's that last line. What God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, what we're saying is God is the one who has joined these two people, husband and wife, together, Not me, not the state, 
Not even the two people joining hands and saying vows. God has joined these two people together. Therefore, let not man separate. So what we're saying is, because God has done it, we're not to undo it. Since God has put it in place, it's not our place to remove it. And when we come to this passage this morning, 1 Corinthians 11, we understand Paul teaches that God has put in place a headship and authority structure for his image bearers at creation. Paul appeals to that. We're going to see that in this passage. He goes back to it. But were there, there were some people that believed it was okay to depart from something that God had put in place. So the outward behavior that was going on in the church in Corinth, we're going to see, was head coverings, not wearing them. But they were just a symbol. The real issue was departing from what God had put into place. So Paul responds to this by going all the way back to the beginning, going all the way back to creation, citing that, that authority structure that God put in place, and he tells them that believers may not remove it. So let's read this passage and watch how Paul brings up the issue, goes to the authority structure at the beginning in creation, and then addresses the issue that was going on in the church. This is 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is in the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as Woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be, inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice nor do the churches of God. Believe it or not, this passage begins with a commendation from Paul to the believers in Corinth. And I think we could probably all hear a collective jaw drop as we, as we read that first line. He's commending them because except for the Thanksgiving in chapter 1, what has Paul done up to this point? It, is, it has been rebuke and correction every step of the way for the last 10 chapters. And then all of a sudden, at the beginning of chapter 11, he says, I commend you. So what's going on there? Well, they're commended because apparently there was a lot that they were doing correctly. 
There was a lot that they were hanging on to. There was a lot that they had remembered and were, were living out and putting in place as believers and as a church. After all, they are gathering for worship on the Lord's Day. They are assembling and, and taking the Lord's Supper on the Lord's Day. They're just not doing it correctly. So we need to remember as we see that commendation after all this rebuke and instruction that this is an occasional letter and it was written to the church for the purpose of correcting and instructing. So that's what we're going to see. We're going to see a letter that addresses all the problem areas. We're not going to address, we're not going to see Paul talking about all the things they're doing right. He's going to be addressing the things that they weren't doing right. So when we look at verse 2 and we see that commendation and we think, what is this for? we can understand that that acts as the sugar that's going to help the medicine go down. He's saying, look, you're you're doing a good job of hanging on to some of these things and the things I told you about. However, there are also a few other things that I'm going to need to continue to address. And one of those issues, one of those problems was women not wearing head coverings during worship. So we need to to reconstruct a little bit of the situation that was going on so then we can move through the text, which is Paul's addressing of that situation. The situation, as best as we can tell, seems to be this. There were at least some in the church at Corinth who had received Paul's teaching. Remember, he was with them for quite a while. So they were familiar with the teaching that he had brought them. Remember, he was acting as an apostle, a representative of the Lord, communicating to them and to the church these foundational truths that, that needed to be given to the church because they had no New Testament. They were receiving direct instruction from the apostle. And some of that teaching including included what we have written down in Galatians 3 about how there is neither male nor female because we're all one in Christ Jesus. They would have been familiar with that. They also would have been familiar with Jesus' teaching in Luke 20, where he teaches that in the age to come, there is not going to be any marriage. After the resurrection, people in, in eternity are not going to be married, and we're not going to, they're not going to be given or, or, or being married at all. And so it seems as if some of the believers there thought that if these things are, are going to be happening, and if, if these things are for us who are in Christ, why not start living these things out now? Why not apply what we're, we're told is coming right here, right now? After all, there are some things in, in the body of Christian doctrine that we are to apply right now. We are to live uh, in, in Christ right now. So they said, well, why not this teaching? In a word, this is called over-realized eschatology. Remember, eschatology is a study of the last things. So Christ's return, eternity, the judgment, all those things that happen at the end. When we use the phrase over-realized eschatology, it, it means that there, there are people trying to bring into the present things that aren't going to be in existence until the end. Okay, there, there's some teaching in, in the New Testament that tells us these things are going to happen in the future, but over-realized eschatology says, why not let's, let's bring those back and start doing them right now when they're not true yet. So some have decided that the gathered worship service was a safe place to try out this over-realized eschatology. After all, the world's not going to understand it, but surely within the church, we can start doing these things and it will be accepted. So they didn't wear their head covering, since it was an outward symbol of marriage in the first century. 
And by extension, it was an outward symbol of being under the headship of their husbands. So by not wearing a head covering, it was as if they were shouting, we are no longer under the headship of our husbands, and all of that stuff has been obliterated in Christ, and we are, we are one in Christ, there's neither male nor female, let's just start living that way right now. None of that stuff matters anymore. Now we come to verses 3 through 16, and this is Paul's response to that situation. So in verse 3, he begins talking about um, understanding that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife, and so forth. So he's using the word head quite a few times. When we come to a passage in Scripture, and if you see a word that's repeated maybe two or three times, that's usually a, an alert signal telling us, hey, we need to pay attention to this word because it's popping up more than once. He's using this repeatedly. Head is used 14 times in this passage. So this is more than just an alert signal. This is a a flashing neon sign saying, let's pay attention to this word. What does this word mean? Most of the time in our passage, it means what we normally think of when we hear the word head. It means a body part, this, this part that sits on top of your body, just our head. But sometimes, for example, in verse 3 and in verse 4 and 5, it does not mean a body part. It's used metaphorically. So when head is used metaphorically, according to New Testament scholarship and lexicons, which are essentially dictionaries for for Koine Greek, the, the biblical Greek language, it means ruler or authority over. And that's the same way it's used figuratively today. When we hear somebody talk about head and they use it metaphorically or figuratively, we understand what they mean. When somebody says, uh, that person's the CEO of the company, uh, or that person's the the CEO is the head of the company, we we understand what that means. It means they're the the ruler, the authority over, they're the head of the company. Or or he's the head of the household, we understand. They're saying, okay, that person is the authority or ruler of the household, we understand. That's how it's used today. And that's the same way it's used metaphorically in the New Testament. For example, Ephesians 1.22 says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Talking about Jesus. Ephesians 5.23, For the husband is, husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Authority, or ruler. Colossians 2.10, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So Jesus is the authority over all authority. So when Paul writes, I want you to understand, and then he follows with man and wife and Christ and their respective heads, what he's saying is the authority over man is Christ. The authority over wife is her husband. The authority over Christ is God the Father. Now somebody might at this point say, oh, hold on a second. The authority of, of Jesus Christ is God the Father? I, I thought Father and Son and Holy Spirit were all equally God. I didn't think there was this... I, I didn't think that's the way it worked. You're right. You're right. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are equally God. There is full equality in terms of divinity and attributes, but there are differences in their activities and the ordering of their activities. For example, the Father... Sent and plan, planned and sent the Son to accomplish redemption. The Son became incarnate. The second person of the Trinity became incarnate and actually accomplished redemption. And the Holy Spirit is the one who applies the benefits of Christ's redemption to the elect. 
those are unique to each person of the Trinity. All three are equal in deity and power. They work harmoniously together. However, in the way they relate to creation and one another, there are functional differences, okay? The second person of the Trinity is the one who became incarnate and actually died on the cross. The Father did not become incarnate. The Holy Spirit did not become incarnate. Neither the Father nor the Holy Spirit were, were incarnate and were crucified on the cross. That was the Son. So there are differences within this full equality of deity and power and attributes. And Paul's appeals, Paul appeals to this relationship within the Trinity as he addresses the concepts of headship and authority for the husband and wife. The headship and authority structure that God put in place at creation. Verse 4, after laying out that foundation, he says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Well, who is man's head? We don't have to guess. Verse 3 tells us the head of every man is Christ. So he's saying if a man covers his head during worship, he dishonors Jesus Christ. Verse 5, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Well, who's her head? Again, verse 3 tells us her husband. So if a woman uncovers her head during the worship service, she dishonors her husband. And then he adds, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Well, why would it be dishonorable for a woman to have her head shaven? And the answer is because then she would look like a man. Men shaved their heads. Women did not. Uh, one New Testament scholar stated, quote, every woman in the culture that day would have been ashamed of appearing in public with her head shaved or her hair cut short because then she would have looked like a man. And you can see how Paul he is laying out a, a parallel between the two actions, worshiping with head uncovered and having a shaved head. Both are dishonoring. And this is what verse 6 makes plain. For, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair short or shave her head, let her cover her head. So in verse 6, Paul's using what's called rhetorical absurdity. He's saying, uh, look, if, if a woman will not cover her head with a man-made covering, like a scarf or veil or something like that, then she should just go all the way and, and shave her head. And then she won't be covering her head with her natural covering meaning her hair. But then he says, since that's disgraceful, she needs to go ahead and cover her head with the man-made covering. So both would be disgraceful to either shave her head completely or, or to not cover her head with the natural, or with the man-made head covering. Then we get to verses 7 through 10. So 7 is going to be the commandment to the men. Verse 10 is the commandment to the women. But verses 8 and 9 serve as the grounds or the reasons for both of those commands. And you can see an ought to language in the, in the command in 7 and in the command in 10. But both, both are dependent upon that 8 and 9 verse as their grounds. So we're going to take those first. We're going to take verses 8 and 9. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. What is this? It's... God's authority and headship structure that he put in place at creation. Paul is going all the way back to the beginning. Man was created for, first. He's the head because God made him the head. Adam 
was first given the task of working and keeping the garden. God spoke to Adam first after the fall. Eve was the first one to eat the fruit. But God, remember, when it was time for accountability, went to the head, Adam. Adam was the federal head for all humanity, not Eve. When we get to Romans 5 and we see Paul's teaching on federal headship, he's talking about Adam, not Eve. And that's because man was created as the head. Woman was created for man. Genesis says, quote, a helper fit for him. So man was not created to be a helper for woman, but woman was created to be helper for man. These are the grounds that Paul goes back to, to, to give a reason or a rationale for both commandments. And it's the headship and authority structure that God put in place at creation. So now let's go to the commands. Verse 7, for man ought not to cover his head since he is in the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Paul says that the man is the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. So the, the Greek word for glory in this context, context means honor. It means honor. So man is the glory of God, woman is the glory of man. He means that man is to bring honor to his head. And that was identified for us in verse 3. Christ. Woman is to bring honor to her head, and that's identified in verse 3, her husband. If the man wore a head covering, that would be something only women do. So he would be doing something that, that women do. That by itself would be disgraceful, but on top of that, he would be communicating to everyone around him that he was not or didn't want to be the man God created him to be. He'd be violating the headship and authority structure that God put in place at creation. So both of those things would be dishonoring. The man must not cover his head because if he wore a head covering, he'd be stepping outside of God's good created order. Verse 10, this is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So the head covering was a symbol of her husband's authority. It was a symbol that communicated being married and by extension under the headship of her husband. So when a woman wore a head covering, it was her way of, of signaling her acceptance and agreement of being married and under the headship of her husband. It was her acceptance of her God-given role as helper, the very things that Paul states as the grounds for his command in verses 8 and 9. To not wear a head covering would send the opposite message. It would send the message that she is rejecting her husband's God-given role Rejecting her God-given role, it'd be violating the headship and authority structure that God put in place at creation. Keeps coming back to that. The phrase, because of the angels, is talking about as angels, as God's messengers, they are frequently in scripture seen as traveling back and forth between earth and the throne of God, reporting on activity that they see. And this is Paul's way of saying, hey, um, yes, God is very much aware of what happens during a worship service. He sees what goes on when the church assembles for worship, and he wants to see his people not trying to remove what, something that, that he had put in place. Verses 11 and 12, full equality. This is Paul providing a short caveat to his teaching so the Corinthians don't misunderstand him and, and take it in the wrong direction thinking that uh, men are superior to women, or, or even worse, that they shouldn't be in the worship service at all. This is Paul's way of, of grounding them. He's saying, 
No, 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 no. And, and we can see why they would be tempted to take in that direction. I mean, the whole passage is about the differences between men and women and, and those divisions that are in place and, and man's headship and, and women's respect to that. I mean, we can see why someone would take it in the wrong direction. And Paul's saying, no, please don't get carried away. So he affirms the interdependence of men and women. He affirms their equal value and worth. He affirms their mutual contributions to the body of Christ and humanity in general. And he's telling the church to obey his commands without going beyond his commands. And then after, after that, appeal to nature. So verse 13, he returns to the topic of head coverings and he challenges his readers to judge for themselves is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? And the assumption at this point is that Paul has made such a strong argument for his case by appealing to God's creation order that everyone, if they, if they looked at this with sober eyes and an honest heart, would come to the same conclusion. That's why he says, judge for yourselves. And then in 14 and 15, there's one last argument. This time Paul appeals to nature itself. He says, nature itself, what he's talking about is the natural sense of right and wrong that God has imprinted upon every human heart. And we know this because the word used here in this verse is, shares the same root word as the word used in Romans 1, 26 and 27 when discussing the sexual immorality that people suppress uh, that, that, that comes about as a result of a suppression of God's truth. When it says they exchanged their natural relations for unnatural relations with the same sex. Same root word, natural. It doesn't mean uh, whatever happens to be popular in the day or your particular culture. He's talking about the, the truth imprinted on every human heart. Again, one New Testament scholar describes it this way, quote, the natural and instinctive sense of right and wrong that God has planted in us, especially with respect to sexuality. This sense of what is appropriate or fitting has been implanted in human beings from creation. There are some things that God has imprinted upon all of us, whether we're a believer or not. You can go to a place in, in the world that has not had the word of God in their own language, and they still instinctively know that some things are wrong. Taking something from someone, someone else that doesn't belong to you. Murdering someone. People know there are some things that are right and some things that are wrong. So godly men will naturally, according to nature, want to live as men. And godly women will naturally want to live as women. They will pull back and recoil from, from representing themselves as the opposite gender. Even among unbelievers, if, even if we had to look around in the world today in 2022, most men and most women still don't intentionally want to try to present themselves as the opposite gender. It's only when men and women's darkened minds suppress the truth of God that they embrace behavior of the opposite gender or seek to present themselves as the opposite gender. So Paul is saying that if a man wears long hair, and intentionally presents himself as a woman, that's, that's disgraceful, that's dishonoring. Likewise, if a woman wears short hair and thereby presents herself as a man, that's also dishonoring. But if a woman wears long hair, seeks to present herself as feminine, it's, the glory, it's to her glory and it's honoring to God. 15b, it says, For her, 
The second half of verse 15. For her hair is given to her. Given by who? God. For her hair is given to her for a covering. So God has given women an instinctive sense to be womanly, to be feminine, and to present themselves as women. And their hair is given to them by God to be a natural covering. And this is true. When a woman wears long hair, it, it covers her neck and, and shoulders and back in a way that men's hair does not when it's short. Verse 16, the passage concludes with a warning. Paul's saying this is not church-specific. This is not just for you in Corinth. This is not just for the first century. This is not time-bound. It's not unique to your culture. It's universal teaching for the church of God until Christ returns. Paul's basically saying, look, this is not up for discussion. I'm not going to talk about this. This is for everybody. What God has put in place, let's summarize this passage and then apply it. It says, we could summarize it like this. Paul reminds the Corinthian church of the headship authority structure that God has put in place. He points out that when someone violates that headship authority structure symbolically, in this case, wearing or not wearing a head covering, it brings dishonor to that person's head. He then gives clear creation-grounded commands directing the believers to live in a way that recognizes and follows God's intentional design for men and women. Men and women are of equal value and worth and personhood, yet there are differences rooted in creation that we must never attempt to erase or minimize. That's what Paul's saying in this passage. Now the challenging part is applying it to today. Um, whenever we approach the Bible, we need to remember that it, it's, all, it's all true. It's all the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. I remember talking with one person who um, professed a, a Jewish faith, and we had several spiritual conversations, and they said, you know, I wish you'd do one thing. And I said, what's that? He said, I wish you'd stop referring to the Old Testament as, as the Bible. You know, you're a New Covenant guy, right? You're New Testament. That's your Bible. I said, no, 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 no. I said, I, I, like all other Protestants, believe the entire Bible is the word of God and we held to the, to the truthfulness and the canon that includes everything from Genesis to Revelation. And that was new for him. He didn't, he didn't understand that before. That's where we're at. So we need to apply everything within these pages. How do we obey these commands? How do we apply these for example, we could go back to Exodus 20:17, which is part of the Ten Commandments, and it says, do not covet. And then it lists specifically some things that the people of God are not to covet. And some of those things include an ox and a donkey. And we might look at that and say, well, I mean, that doesn't really apply today anymore, right? I don't think any of us have an ox at home. I doubt it. So, so the temptation is to say, oh, well, that was cultural time-bound. We don't have to worry about that. No, it's still very much relevant today. Even though it mentions those things, that doesn't mean we throw it out and say it doesn't apply anymore because it also mentions other things. It mentions do not cover your neighbor's house, do not cover your neighbor's wife, and those things are very much ap- applicable today. We don't have to look for a, an, a, another way to, to live that out. We, we live that out by not coveting our our neighbor's spouse and our neighbor's house. But we also understand it extends to other things that weren't there 
when it was originally written. For example, a car. And also, incidentally, that command ends with, and anything that is your neighbor's. So the challenge is finding out how we apply these things, not deciding that, oh, well, that was written for them thousands of years ago. It must not apply for us to today. So the two most prominent questions I get um, on a regular basis concerning this passage are, number one, what about head coverings today? If we're supposed to be people of the book, if we're supposed to be faithfully following out, following out scripture, why aren't women wearing head coverings in the worship service? So we're going to tackle that one. The second question I commonly get is, what about hair length? Because this seems to be coming down pretty strong that women should have long hair and men should have short hair. What about that? Do we need to apply that and live that out today? So let's handle those two applications and then one more that we'll get to at the end. Number one, head coverings today. This starts with asking the question, does a woman wearing a head covering today mean the same thing that it did in the first century? And the answer is no. When someone saw a woman walking down the street in public or anywhere else in a worship service, they would look at her, see the head covering, and go, oh, she's married. When we see a woman wearing a hat today, we don't say, oh, she must be married. That's not what comes to mind because that's not what it means today. However, when we see a woman or a man and we look at their left hand and we look at their ring finger and we see either a golden band for, or you know, a, a band, some kind of wedding ring for a man or a wedding ring for a woman, we think, oh, they're married. And rightly so, because that is a symbol that stands for marriage today, much in the same way a head covering did in the first century. So... How do we apply this? We would apply this passage for encouraging women not to take off their wedding rings when they come to church because that's the closest equivalent to what a head covering would be in the first century. Now, the head covering was a little more than that. It it signified marriage, but it also signified decency, um, moral moral decency. So it's not exactly a one-to-one, but it's pretty close. It's pretty close as far as a symbol that points to something. We would want, if we wanted to faithfully apply this passage, we would want women not to seek to minimize or or erase the fact that they're married and by extension under their husband's headship and authority. That would be an appropriate application. Now, Paul's response to this situation tells us that contrary to what some of the people were believing in the first century, now is not the time to live out your over-realized eschatology. Paul's thrust in this passage is saying, look, um, I understand those things are coming where there's not going to be any marriage and and all those things that that are happening in the age to come, but that's not yet happening. It's not time right now to remove something that God has put into place. Those things still very much matter because God inaugurated them at creation. That's the thrust of Paul's teaching. So when we come to the to head covering and the application to today, here's what we can say. When you see a woman wearing a head covering, or if you think it's a good idea to re- wear a head covering, the answer is this. It is completely irrelevant. It is completely irrelevant. This is like chewing gum and walking at the same time. You can, or you can't. It doesn't make any difference. It's completely irrelevant. So 
Uh, women may or may not wear head coverings, and it does have any meaning. I don't want anyone to, to walk away thinking, hey, and, and sometimes you may have heard some of this teaching, if you really want to be faithful to God, and if you really want to be obedient, you should probably seek out a church where women still wear head coverings, because they're the, they're the real obedient churches. That's just not true. I would say if you really want to be faithful and if you really want to be obedient to God's word, seek out a church that lives out and teaches the headship and authority structure that God has put in place at creation. That would be a way to be obedient and faithful to God. So number two, hair length for men and women today. What about hair length? Some men can pull off longer hair and still look masculine, and some women can pull off shorter hair and still look feminine. Our culture as a whole, and particularly here in America in 2022, have have recognized and and have adopted shorter hairstyles for women and longer hairstyles for men within reason, and it really doesn't raise any eyebrows. Nobody's nobody's asking any questions or challenging uh, whether or not they're presenting themselves as the opposite gender. However, we should be careful, based on scripture, to think that hair length is irrelevant, like we would with the head coverings. Head coverings are irrelevant. Hair length? Hold on a second. Because this passage appeals to nature itself, and that hasn't changed. What God has imprinted, in terms of right and wrong, has been imprinted on the human heart from the beginning. And because of that, it seems like we should take care to avoid the extremes to avoid the extremes. For example, if a woman has a, a buzz haircut like a man, or if a man has, has flowing long hair down his back like a woman, then that would seem that they're crossing a gender appearance line. And even if they say they're not trying to intentionally present themselves, it would seem that just kind of by default and by virtue of wearing their hair so contrary to nature that they are crossing Line. So verses 14 and 15 make it extremely difficult for us to say that hair length doesn't matter. Paul's appealing to nature itself and that has not changed. And finally, application point number three, being men and women today. Women were commanded to wear a head covering in the first century because to not wear one would send a strong message of rebellion against God's good created order that he established and put in place for two reasons. Number one, it communicated independent of their husband's headship. And number two, it would be shamefully portraying themselves as a man. Both of those things were dishonoring. Both of those things were off limits. There was a, a man who was talking about the church that he was going to, not, not here, not anywhere around here. This is um, out of state. And there was a pastor that had been there for almost 20 years, and he had a very faithful ministry, and the church was very vibrant and, and very healthy, and they were biblically sound. Everything was, was light and going, going very well. And then he left, and everybody was sad that he left, and a new pastor came in. And within a very short period of time, under five years, the church slid into unfaithfulness and started becoming filled with nominal believers and name only, and they very quickly became unrecognizable from the world around them. And he was, and this, this man that had been attending this church, the, the person asked him, what happened? 
How, how could that possibly have happened? You guys were so strong. You were so faithful. It's only been like, what, three or four years? And he said, yeah. Said, well, what happened? He said, well, when the new guy came in, it's not that he didn't preach and teach what was right. It's that he didn't speak to and refuse to talk about the things that were wrong and that were sinful. And that's all it took. In light of that, when we come to this passage, we need to understand men and women are to act and to present themselves and to live according to their God-assigned genders. It is disgraceful, dishonoring, and sinful for men and women to intentionally present themselves as the opposite gender by their behavior, dress, action, or appearance. Even a cursory glance, if we take around at the entertainment industry, the culture today, there is an unrelenting assault on God-created masculinity and femininity. There is an unrelenting attack. The world is determined to completely obliterate any differences between men and women. That, that is the goal. And here's the thing. We may have thought at one point, okay, maybe that's all they want, to just erase all differences between men and women. But that's not all they want. Because not only do they want to erase all differences between men and women, now they want to reverse men and women. I think we can all attest to the validity of this. If we, if we watch anything today, we can see men regularly being portrayed, dressing, acting, behaving effeminate, and we can regularly see women being portrayed, dressing, acting, behaving masculine. That's the goal. Not to just erase differences, but to reverse male and female. And here's the thing. It's not just entertainment. It's our lawmakers. It's our civil governments. It's our elected officials, it's our school boards, and sadly, even some of our churches. That's where we're at. It's no more a, a hidden agenda. It is a frontal, open-air, in-the-street assault on men and women, male and female, and boys and girls. Satan hates God's creation of male and female, so we shouldn't expect these attacks to go away. Barring a revival, the likes of which we have never seen in the history of the church, these things are going to continue. So, in contrast to that, believers, followers of Jesus Christ, will joyfully embrace and want to seek out and live to the fullest what it means to be men and women. We, we do not want to erase, and we certainly don't want to reverse the distinctions and the, and the things that God has put in place at creation we want to live our lives as God created us. So the challenge, the, the, the takeaway, men, be men. Embrace everything that is biblically masculine and according to nature and teach your boys to be godly men. Women, be women. Embrace everything that is biblically feminine and according to nature and teach your girls to be godly women. By doing this, two things will happen. Number one, you will increasingly stand out when contrasted with the world around you. You will increasingly stand out according or, or in contrast with the world around you. You may be thought of as weird. You, you may be labeled extreme or ultra-conservative. 
You may be called a hater because you do not embrace the world's sinful and distorted unbiblical view of sexuality. That's one thing that might happen. Number two, you will increasingly stand out when contrasted with the world around you. You will be a light shining in a dark world. You will be a godly example to those who are seeking godliness. And you will be raising children who grow into be men and women that God created them to be. And finally, you will be faithfully living out what God has put in place. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks specifically for this passage, for what it teaches us. Father, we, we want to joyfully live out how you have created us as men and as women. And we acknowledge that that is different. Men are not to live as women, and women are not to live as men. Father, would you enable us by the power of your Holy Spirit to more and more live according to your word and according to nature and to reject anything that is not for men biblically masculine and for women anything that is not biblically feminine. May we stand as lights in a dark world and may we live out what you've put in place faithfully. Amen.